0: Stephen, do you know how much of your brain you use on a daily basis?
1: I do now after today's episode.
0: We interviewed Dr. Ginger Campbell, host of Brain Science, uh, which is a podcast and so much more. You can find her on YouTube and other audio podcasts. She talked to us today about all things brain.
1: Yeah, she is a very popular podcast. Please check it out. And after you watch this episode, she gave us her extended list of things, things about the brain I'm going to say she gave us a, a, a bonus list because we had a little more time and we mm-hmm. talked about that. And then Sarah and I threw some questions at her to, uh, to answer, which I don't think she even had to think to answer our questions. Uh, that might have been a little too easy, maybe, but uh, it was really cool talking about how much the brain used left brain, right brain, discussing that and uh, changes in the brain. It was a lot of fun, we learned a lot. And so make sure you stay to the end so you hear some of those questions and get some of those answers for yourself too. And uh, we hope you enjoy this one, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Welcome to Superheroes of Science, I'm Steven.
0: And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting edge science right now.
1: They're experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people.
0: Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Well, joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we're so excited to welcome Dr. Ginger Campbell, host of the Brain Science Podcast. So welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me.
1: Oh, well, we certainly appreciate you taking time. And uh, it's, we, we know you're a, a busy person, and it seems like you have a lot of irons in the fire from what I saw and read on you, and uh, you were recommended to us. Uh, because it's uh, it's obviously uh, about science and podcasts are definitely second nature for you at this point.
2: Yeah, I'm heading to actually. I guess last week was the 15th anniversary of Brain Science. It started out as the Brain Science podcast. I took podcast out of the name about ah oh gosh over five years ago, as I thought podcasts had become redundant. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs>
0: Well, congratulations. That's quite a milestone, and, um, and very that's got to be exciting.
1: I was going to say, for 15 years, running strong still. That's very impressive. No wonder it's, it's, it rated so high.
2: Yeah. yeah, it does have a few iTunes, um, you know, track recorders helping it.
0: Great. Well, so brain science, so we're... We want to know more. So where do we begin? Like where, where, where's a good starting point to begin
2: for, with brain science? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is, you know, the tagline for my show is the show for everyone who has a brain. And that is supposed to capture the idea that this show is intended for regular people. It's not aimed at scientists, although about 20% of the audience is MDs or PhDs, that was not, you know, my intention. And you'd be surprised how many times people, I have a t-shirt that says that on it, and I'll get people saying, I can't listen to your show because I don't have a brain. They think that's really funny, but I really don't think it's very funny. Um, So that's the first thing I'd like to say is that uh, no matter what your background, the show can be for you. I've heard from people who haven't been to college, um, plumbers, tattoo artists, house painters—everything um, from that to you know the um, the guys that are in the trenches doing the work who enjoy listening so they can find out what other people are up to.
1: Absolutely, that's 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 what we run too. It's ours is really for everyone and anyone interested in science at all. Uh, we do get uh, feedback from uh, from professionals and. The scientists know sometimes their peers are listening in, which is uh, it's, it, sometimes it's pressure for them, and sometimes they're just like, "This is what it is." <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, it does.
2: It does keep you um, careful about what you, you know, say and do. That's a good thing.
0: Uh, yes, definitely.
2: Yeah. So, I see um,
0: when when we talk about the brain, do, do we do we start from like a physiological side, like, like a a chemical biology side, or, or is it, um, is it, do we talk just as much about the psychology of the brain?
2: Well, I, I'm, um, I'm kind of a big picture person. I don't, I mean, I have done episodes about you know, the biology and the chemistry and neurotransmitters. And I do those from time to time, but I try to focus really on why does this matter to you as a regular person? Um, and, And that's really the level of focus I have. So some of my listeners will write to me and say that they think that neuroscience is going to replace psychology. I think that that's not true because psychology is the field that is devoted to the whole person approach or should be, right? And just looking at just the brain is, is not enough. A good example is drug addiction. If you say, oh, drug addiction is a brain disease, which is the current model that um, is very popular because that's how you get money, um, it ignores the role of the environment and the fact that you know the best treatment programs for drug addiction have to take into account environment, otherwise they fail. So I don't think psychology is going to be replaced by neuroscience. I think good psychology requires a basis in neuroscience.
1: That's very well said. And that makes sense. It's that environmental factors are something oftentimes we overlook, I think. It, it's easy to especially for us because we're just all about the science mm-hmm. and so it's easy to get wrapped up in the science and forget about the external variables um, such as environment when you're looking at things like this definitely. so definitely but you had um, I, I know that when we we're talking about the neuroscience side of things you were talking about uh, the, the five big things I think if mm-hmm. I remember. and so would you care to uh, kind of go over and explain some of those for us
2: Sure. Um, and I'll just give a plug that, um, if somebody wants the handout for this, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: all you have to do is text, um, brain science, all one word to five, five, four, four, four. And you'll automatically get my newsletter and this handout. And then you can always unsubscribe if you don't want to hear about episodes of the show. But I just want to say that that's an easy way to get the handout for these five things. Um, Yeah, the first one is really kind of obvious, but important, which is that the brain creates everything that we experience. And, you know, that may seem obvious, but it really hasn't been that long since you remember Aristotle thought all the brain did was cool the blood, right? Um, And the ancient Egyptians used to throw away the brain when they made their mummies, So it's not like we've always appreciated how important the brain is. And, you know, many traditions still work on the assumption that somehow consciousness is separate from the brain. But at this point, the evidence that our experience is totally dependent on our brain is very, it's, it's as solid as any other kind of science fact you could think of. So, so that's important because obviously it has a lot of implications. Uh, One of the, most practical one is it means that none of us has a full access to what's going on. You know, what we know is basically what our brain tells us and each one of us has a unique experience. It's not just because of our past, but in our particular sensory um, world, you know, my experience of the world is not the same as my golden retrievers, obviously uh, he loves nasty smells. Um, but I think this should be a step toward having some more tolerance toward one another, understanding that, you know, there is no way any person has an objective view of reality. Uh, Now science, the goal of science is to come up with evidence that we can all have access to and if we're good scientists reproduce. Um, Any questions on that one before I go to number two? Now I have to think if I can remember what number two is. Oh, yeah, because I did not put my list in front of me. Um, <laughs> uh, second one is that oh, most of what our brain does is unconscious. And that's a big theme of my book, The Unconscious Origins of Certainty. Um, in terms of the evidence for this, this is something that is even, you might say, somewhat newer. I mean, For a long time, neuroscientists actually thought that perception, which you might think, well, perception, that's an obvious example of an unconscious process of the brain, right? We know that now, but that's actually relatively new. In fact, um, um, von Hemholtz, who was the first person who proposed that perception might be unconscious, was kind of ignored because at the time, scientists assumed perception was fully conscious, interestingly um uh oh sorry I'm, I'm blanking on the guy's name oh yeah Stanisoff dehan who is you know one of the leading researchers on consciousness he's french he he did a lot of research really basically demonstrating how much even though he's a consciousness researcher part of that has to do with showing how much was really going on unconsciously and you know The reason I focused on certainty in my book, uh, I was sort of piggybacking on the work of Robert Burton, who I highly recommend as a guest, um, is that, you know, when we, we believe something, we're sure about it, we then can obviously justify that. But actually what we believe is not under our conscious control. And I actually think that this is important for science people to understand when they're going, oh, you're stupid because you believe in God, because actually when it gets right down to it, we can be looking at the same set of facts and and, um, get different conclusions. Even in science, we see that, you know, how you see one person's correlation is another person's proof, right? Because the way we weigh things. So Again, you know, calling somebody stupid because they've reached a different set of conclusions, you know, it doesn't accomplish anything. You know, it just turns. I think you can be a scientific fundamentalist, if you know what I mean, be just as intolerant as, you know, those that are clinging to, to beliefs that are totally unscientific. So that's why I think understanding how much that we do that's unconscious is, is really important in terms of being able to um, deal with each other. With. Um, yeah. Can I ask? Sorry. So, the, the whole part,
0: well, sorry, Stephen, I, I jumped in before you, but uh, the per, perception being unconscious, are we, and I, I don't have the words, so I, I'll try to frame the question as best I can, but when we talk about this unconscious, is it things like our body systems? I feel like maybe I'm still thinking too. Right. It's like this. Or is it unconscious just? thought in general about what we're perceiving and maybe
2: stimuli that we're experiencing or both? Yeah, I I think I, thank you, Sarah. I think I didn't do a very good job of introducing that idea. Um, So let's take perception as a simple example. We know that when um, light hits the retina, it starts getting processed even at the At the level of the retina. So, by the time we experience a visual scene, it has no relationship to what hit our retina. Okay, so that's perception. That's an example of something that's almost top, but even that, um, that's almost entirely unconscious. Yet, our conscious experience affects it. You know, there's top down feedback. We tend to see what we expect to see. We by looking for different things, you know, by we have conscious control over what we're looking for, right? So if you are looking for a certain thing, it may or may not pop out at you, right? When you look for it, sometimes it's like the thing you're looking for, you just look right through it. Um, (laughs) But um, so that's kind of a, you know, kind of a straightforward one, then it gets more complicated because like, say you're learning how to ride a bike, right? When you're learning how to ride a bike or drive a car, you have to think about everything, right? But eventually most of that becomes unconscious. It becomes automatic, And so that's more hybrid because you can still sort of access some of it. The key thing is that a lot of that most of the stuff that is unconscious is not accessible. And that's important because it means that introspection is not a reliable guide to what's really going on. Unfortunately, we'd like to think there's this long tradition of thinking that if we could just look deeper in our, into, into ourselves, we would understand ourselves better. But because of this unconscious element, and I'm not talking about Freud's scientific unconscious, I'm talking about the real unconscious processes of the brain. So there's, like I said, there's the things that are just totally unconscious, like we, but then think about it, some people, can start to control things that we think of as unconscious, like slow their heart rate down, right? So even the stuff we think of as being totally unconscious, sometimes, you know, gets along the edges. So it it reminds us of the danger of black and white thinking, right? Lots of times, either or gets us in trouble. Sometimes it's both.
1: (laughs) And so so there are some processes that the brain's going through that uh, we're not controlling. It's just happening. But there are times that we can consciously make an effort to alter those
2: things. Right. But let's take, go back to vision. You can't unsee a visual illusion, right? Even when, have you ever looked at those pictures in the books? Even when you know that they're an illusion, you still see them, right? So that is an example of something that really is totally unconscious. Even knowing what you're really looking at, you can't affect it. Those, those um, things that flip back and forth between like the vase and the faces that, you, it's going to do that. You can't control it, okay? So that's an example of something that's really more on the pure unconscious processing end. And then something that you have learned how to do consciously is more on the, you know, you can consciously control it, but don't have to end. And then there's a lot of stuff in the middle. Um, But the thing is, there really is a lot of stuff going on in the unconscious that we don't have access to. And so so to claim, and it's really, for example, moral reasoning, there's lots of evidence that people come up with their position like this and then they make up a story for why their position is right. Okay. So um, that's what I meant by the fact that the introspection has its limits. Um, but But I really think it's more important to think of the fact that, you know, you need to reach conclusions. You're always working on incomplete information. And if you didn't reach conclusions that felt very confident and sure, you would be frozen or eaten by the tiger if you like. So you can see the evolutionary reason why we have this sense of, yeah, I know it, even when we might be wrong, because it keeps us able to function. Do you want me to go to number three now? Yeah. Okay. So the next one is everyone's memory is unreliable. Everyone's memory is unreliable. And the reason for this is that memory doesn't work the way, it doesn't work like a video recorder. We don't make a exact recording of what happens and then play it back. Instead, what we now know is that every time we remember something, we basically recreate the experience. It uses the parts of our brain that were originally involved. The problem is, as a part of that recreation, we also add things that have happened or we have learned since that event occurred. So for example, I was a little kid when President Kennedy was assassinated and I have this strong memory of spending three days in front of the TV set and during that time, Um, Lee Harvey Oswald was assassinated on live TV. Okay. I think that I saw that, but, you know, I might not have, because I also saw replays of it and it became a part of my memory of the event. So whether I actually saw it when it really happened, I don't know. There's a famous experiment that was done at the time of the Challenger disaster. Um, Are you familiar with this story? It's the one about the yep. flashbul- flash- flashbulb memories. Flashbulb memories is the idea that when something has a lot of emotional content, it's more accurately remembered, uh, actually false. But anyway, that's the idea. So what they did was they, they talked to, of course, it's a psychology experiment, so they talked to college students. Um, right after the Challenger disaster and had them write down, you know, what they were doing, what they were feeling, et cetera. Then a couple of years later, they re-interviewed them and only 25% of them gave stories that matched what they had originally written. Not only that, there was actually one guy who looking at his own handwriting said, I know that's what I wrote, but what I remember is what really happened. He actually rejected his own contemporary account in favor of his reconstructed memory. <laughs> um, and Elizabeth Loftus is the, is the person who's done the most work in, in um, she's the one who debunked the whole, um, um, you know, uh, repressed memory stuff that people were, were doing back in the nineties, because she showed how easy it is to install false memories in people. And if you ever get a chance to hear her talk, it's pretty amazing. She, she, the last time I heard her talk, she did this thing where she showed us these pictures, you know, like a lineup of guys and said, which one, which one? And she got us all to remember the wrong guy by the end. I mean, which is why eyewitness testimony is really not reliable. Um, so um, this is another one that has a lot of practical significance, because like, say somebody's story of an event changes and then someone's saying, oh, they have dementia, or oh, they're lying. Well, neither one of those has to be true. Stories naturally evolve as we as we tell them, not because we intend for them to, but because stuff gets added in. Um, I kind of figure all these people who think they remember being a baby, which is physiologically impossible, that what they've really done is incorporated the memories from their family that they were told growing up about what happened when they were a baby. Um, and. Unfortunately, your sense of how accurate a memory is is not reliable. So, if you're arguing with somebody, have you do you the one if you have brothers and sisters? We both do. <laughs> yeah. Have you talked to them about something that happened when you were kids and discovered you have entirely different memories of that event? It's like you didn't even have the same childhood sometimes. So that's a good example of how that happens. I find it fascinating talking to, I have a sister who's only a year younger than me. And we have some amazingly different memories of of major events, actually. So it's kind of interesting. So think of the feuds that people get into over what happened back when, you know, maybe you're both wrong. (laughs) So that's the reason why I consider that one to be very important. Uh, Number four is that, that you're wired to be social. Again, this is one of those ones that might seem obvious, especially after this last almost two years of the pandemic, we've seen how horrible it is to be isolated from one another. Um, but there's a whole branch of neuroscience called social neuroscience, which is really, uh, you know, fascinating because you, um, there's even theories that the reason why our brain got so big was so that we would be able to get along with each other or not. Um, so um, this one is just, you know, really important because one of the things that makes it important is that it gives us some insight into why, um, you know, living in a culturally diverse society is such a challenge. I mean, we are naturally drawn to people who are that look like us. That's not something we have another one of those things we don't have conscious control over. And you can imagine why. I mean, in the early days of, of, of humans, we would have needed to know who's our, who's our friends and who's our foe pretty quick. Right. And so we have, you know, an unconscious bias, right. For the people who are like us, but that's not the same thing as prejudice. And I think it's really important not to labels, you know, like when you take one of those implicit bias, Test and then say, oh, you're prejudiced because you have an implicit bias against so-and-so. No, they aren't the same thing. You, you can't control your unconscious bias, but you can be aware of it and try to consciously make decisions. So that's, the, that's one reason why I think it's really important to understand this role of, of, um, of our social brain. And my fifth one is you are not a brain in a vat. Now, your audience is probably aware of this image of the brain and the bat, But I always think of, um, well, back in the 80s, there was this movie called All of Me. Have either one of you seen it? It has um, Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin. And Lily Tomlin is, well, she's a head in a jar, like on Futurama. You've seen Futurama? Okay. But the basic idea is it gets back to that idea that your consciousness could be separate from your body. And that's just not how it works. The more we learn, the more we've come to appreciate how important embodiment is. Um, Your brain relies on your body for everything it knows about the world, right? And everything that it does in the world, it relies on your body. And this is where the gap between, um, you know, well, one of the gaps between artificial intelligence and, you know, Embodied and consciousness comes in because intelligence and consciousness are not the same thing. You know, Google's search engine might be really intelligent at what it does, but it's not going to become conscious just because it can put all these facts together because it's not embodied. Um, so I think um, that one bottom line is don't be putting all your bags in the hay. I'll just um, I'll just upload my consciousness and not worry about what's going to happen to the earth because no, um, as human beings, we are embodied consciousnesses and uh, we need our brain is part of our body for one thing, but we need the whole package. This one would have usually been in the top five, but I've been doing my show so long, I, never, I no longer consider it in the top five, but that is the fact that um you know your brain is plastic and continues to change throughout your life Um, when i first started my podcast that was a new idea but it's not really a new idea anymore in fact now it's to this point of just being exploited by charlatans who want to you know sell you various miracle things to make your brain better you know brain exercises and 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 whatnot Um, and, but it is important to know that, that your brain is constantly changing and no matter how old you are, you can learn new things. In fact, the most important thing you can do to keep your brain healthy is to continue to challenge it, to learn new things.
1: Now, I have a question about number four about okay. the, being wired to be social. Okay. That would seem more like psychology than neuroscience that surprised me uh, when, when I when what I, when I, well I read that because you gave me a handout ahead of time but uh, that, that really surprised me to see that uh, as a neuroscience thing because I just thought a social thing was just something that we just kind of emotionally needed and uh, I didn't think about it ever well, being
2: before the break okay so one thing I left out because I was you know going off the cuff without notes is that um, for example, we know this is a neuroscience thing. We know that when someone is socially rejected, it stimulates the same, some of the same parts of the brain that stimulate physical pain. So it hurts to be rejected. It hurts, right? And that's, that's a brain, I mean, and where do you experience pain in your brain, right? So it, there is a neuroscience element to it, but I, I guess I would classify that one as, as um. The reason why I say that my show is a big picture show and not just just a brain show. I mean, I, you know, the reason the show is called Brain Science is because when I started out, um, you know, iTunes was just starting to do um Um, podcast, they still had this, this website called the podcast pickle, which was the leading place you went to find podcasts, believe it or not. Um, And I thought, hey, brain ABC, you know, like the old fashioned yellow pages way of choosing your name. (laughs) So, uh, so that's why brain is in the name of my show. Although I do think it's less intimidating than the world neuroscience. Uh, But, um, uh, you know, I, that's, so I'm glad you pointed out social sounds like something psychology. That's not a bad thing because, like I said, I think, um, you know, there's an awful lot of ne- s- ne- psychologists these days calling themselves neuroscientists because they think it sounds cooler, even though <laughs> they're really psychologists.
1: Uh, we as um, we, we Humanity or scientists there, not me. Uh, mapped out the brain where different, where we do un- really understand. I hear people saying, "Oh, that's the left, right." Even, and I sorry, even you said oh, yeah. like earlier this week. Oh, that crosses the left and right barrier. And yeah, they, is that legit? Is that real, or is that it just something that we tend to say?
2: Well, it's like Brenda Milner, who, um, gosh, she probably is almost 100 now. But she, she did some of the famous experiments with H.M., you know, the guy that had his hippocampus destroyed. Um, she, uh, I had her on long ago, and she said, um, use both sides of your brain for everything. I mean, you know, the thing is the split brain experiments are are not representative of what our brain does in real life. Uh, It is true that there are certain, there's what's called lateralization, which begins um, in primates. And I'm not sure whether there's any other mammals that have uh, lateralization, but I know it's a, a primate feature, which is that certain one side of the brain is doing more of one thing than another. Um, you know, the most obvious one is we think of it as those left brain is being usually where language is, but that doesn't mean that um, you know it's doing it all on its own. Okay, I think the whole left brain right brain thing, to be honest, is is um, is totally blown out of proportion. Um, you know, we're coming to appreciate that it's not as much about, you know, this part of the brain does this and this part of the brain does that as it is who talks to who, right? So that's the idea of networking and the connectome. Have you heard of the connectome? So there's researchers doing this whole human connectome project where they want to get all the wiring of the brain. The problem is we only have the wiring for one brain and that's the, um, C. elegans worm that has only 302 neurons. And even with that wiring diagram, we can't predict what that little worm is going to do. And the wiring diagram is going to be constantly changing back to plasticity. I mean, even if we had the technology to figure out the wiring diagram, we would be having a snapshot. This is the wiring diagram right, there, right now, or right when the, when the pictures were made. So I think that You know, but the key idea is that um, different parts of the brain have to talk to each other to actually get things done, rather one part of the brain being like, I'm the guy who does this and you do that. Um, That's the modular model, which is still really um, popular, especially with some um, philosophers. But, um, you know, I actually would go so far as to say that I think where is the wrong question. You know, if you ask, you know, where, where in the brain does X, you know, it's really, it's really the wrong question. Um, But the problem is with, you know, functional MRI being so popular, it's like that old saying about, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. (laughs) Um, For example, MRI is really easy to study certain parts of the brain and not so easy to study others. And so then what's going to happen is the parts you can study are going to be studied in preference. And so we get this skewed. I mean, here's another example. What does the MRI do? Doesn't actually measure brain activity, right? It only measures blood flow. So it tells you that a certain area is active. It doesn't exactly tell you what it's doing. In fact, if you get really good at something, the part of your brain that does it doesn't actually need much blood to do that thing, right? right. So where's like you know, the, the inferences, this is lighting up more, therefore this is where it's doing it, is, you know, is a little shaky. It may be true, it may not be true. But um, so I that's why i'm not a big fan of the where question i i I think how why are more interesting questions and again back getting back to the to the big picture um we do of course know that certain parts of the brain are essential they're lost and then we can't do a particular thing but again It doesn't necessarily tell us what that part's role is. That part's role might be that it's the place that connects the other guys together. Right? So it's a lot more complicated than, Oh, your left brain. Oh, Oh, your right brain is what makes you artistic. That's just total. (laughs) Put it out of your mind and your brain.
0: (laughs) Would it, and and on that, I guess on that strand, Is it, would it be the same? I'm guessing no, that it wouldn't be the same for everybody, that there might be regions that either work together or like you're saying, that's not even
2: necessarily the right question to ask where, but. Right. Well, that's a really good point because if you do MRIs on multiple people, you see overlap, but nobody's exactly the same. So that's, that's, that is, that is a good point. Now we do know, I mean, most of what we know about what parts of the brain are really essential for certain things come from patients who have deficits. For example, we know that the hippocampus is essential for making new memories uh, because when we destroy people's hippocampus to try to fix their seizures, they couldn't make any new memories. <laughs> um, so that was an oops, back in the 50s. But um, yeah, so we know that, you know, and of course way back in, gosh, I, even I guess it was in the 1800s that the first parts of the brain that were associated with speech were, were identified. So, you know, we know that there are certain areas that have, you know, are are in common between people, but then we also know that people because of plasticity can learn to use parts of their brain um, differently. For example, if a person's blind, they're, visual cortex doesn't sit there doing nothing. It takes up other things. It does hearing, it does touch. Um, You know, if you look at the neurons in the cortex, they are not different back here compared to here. They're all, they're all pretty similar. So that's where the, it's who you're talking to that really matters, seems to come in. So I'm getting
0: I, like a flood. Oh, go ahead, Stephen. No, go ahead. Go ahead. You're fine. I was just say I'm getting like a flood of, of questions now, but
2: I'm. Like, <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. One at a time, though.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I, so one. I know I've heard it all my life, and I I've just never listened. I've never thought of it. But um, you you hear people say like, well, you only use.
2: I knew that was coming as soon as <laughs> you said. <laughs> yes, you only use ten percent of your brain. False. False, false, false. But you be admit, I, I never get over how many times I see magazines on the on the newsstand by reputable things like National Geographic, that are still, you know, saying that it's like the bad idea that won't. Here's a good scientific question: Why are bad ideas harder to get rid of than the truth? I, I you know, I'd like to know the answer to that. Um, but anyway, um, no. I mean, you you use all of your brain. I mean, the, the funny thing about it is that it turns out that a lot of the time, your brain does its own thing. You know, it turns out that spontaneous activity is a big part of what the brain does. You might've heard of the default mode network. That's becoming a hot idea. That's the part that appears to be active when you're sitting there doing nothing. But your brain's never sitting there doing nothing, right? Even when you're asleep. And even if you're not... dreaming your brain's doing stuff. So yeah, throw out that 10%. Yeah. And there's not an exercise that you can do to make yourself use more of your brain. That's (laughs) yeah. And you can't learn in your sleep because (laughs) it turns out that attention is essential to making new memories. So you can't learn stuff you're not paying attention to.
0: Well, related to that. Okay. I have one more (laughs) question. And I promise I'll let you take a turn. But so I agree. I know I've, I've actually tried that I've been desperate before. I have a big test. I'm just going to sleep on my book. Maybe this will, <laughs> but, um, but I have, this happened. I was really struggling with a math problem in college and I couldn't, I just couldn't, I couldn't get it. I didn't know. I went to bed and I dreamed the answer and I woke up and I knew how to answer it. I answered it correctly. And so I, I've never, I feel like I like, my friends were like, whatever
2: (laughs) you didn't. Yeah. And that is, uh, that's great. That's great. And, and, and Robert Burton, who I is the person I got most of my ideas about the, the unconscious origins of certainty from, he um, uses that example all the time of, you know, you, you, uh, you can't think of the solution to a problem and you sleep on it and, and you wake up and you know, the answer and it's because your brain has continued to work on the problem right? And, and then it feels like it's popped out of nowhere because we're not aware of the processes. I mean, when you're trying to solve a problem consciously, you have a different sense of effort than you have when it seems like it came out of nowhere. But it, in reality, it's coming out of the same place. I mean, it's coming from your, your brain. And it's really kind of interesting because people, depending on what their beliefs are, their interpretation of these coming out of nowhere like experiences are going to be very different. You know, it can, it can range to, you know, my muse, God told me, you know, just about any, you know, worldview you want can be used as an explanation for why the answer popped up. Um, and the dreaming part, I mean, you know, that just seemed, there's actually good evidence that dreaming, one of the roles of dreaming is consolidating of new ideas. So it's probably not as surprising as it might seem that we might occasionally dream solutions. You know, the, you know the famous example of the guy who um, supposedly dreamed the um, hexane ring, the organic chemistry thing. Yes. So, yeah. So just put yourself in in those in that category. Good on you. <laughs>
1: Interesting. Do your neurons themselves change? I mean, we talk about the brain being pliable and how it will change. But it's like, is that actual uh, where everything is in the brain? Does does that change too?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert on that at all. But I do know that there's a lot of evidence that um, that the dendrites change, which are the, the the branches that receive information, you know, they have these little knobby places where they make more connections and there's a lot of evidence that they can get more knobby, which means that they can make more connections. So there's a lot of people doing work on the real, you know, you might say guts of what's going on, but yes, it really is at the level of, um, of the brain synapses, which is um, the connections between neurons, exactly what's going on inside neurons. I don't think, I don't know if anybody's really studying that yet. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we still don't know. I mean, despite the fact that we've learned an awful lot in the last 50 years, the Society for Neuroscience just celebrated its 50th um, anniversary with their meeting last month. Um, But, you know, the amount we know is, you know, is teeny compared to the stuff we still don't know. Neuroscience is a very young science if you compare it to, say, physics.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I, I can see it being a very hard thing to study and uh, collect data on.
2: Well, the tricky thing about neuroscience is you have to rely on what they call convergent data because what that means is there's things you can study in people like MRIs and stuff, and then there's things like what's happening down in the neuron. You can't do that in a person, right? So there is a, they still have a need for animal experiments. They do a lot with mice because as mam, as being that there's a lot in common in all mammal brains, that's why they can use mice. Um, and they get information from these different levels and they have to, they, then there's the tricky part of asking, can this really be extrapolated from between species? Um, so, you know, then what they have to do is they do the experiments in different species. And if they keep getting the same thing, then they think, well, this is probably something that all the species have in common, but there are certain things you cannot, for example, single neuron recordings are very rarely done in people because you don't want you know, electrodes in your brain. So the only time that they're done is when someone is going to have a neurosurgical procedure and they're doing recording before the operation, they do this so that they won't destroy important parts when they do their procedures. So that's when they get the single um, single cell recordings. The famous Janison, uh, Jennifer Aniston neuron experiment was done in that context. Um, so, um, that, so that's one of the things that adds to the challenge: is that you cannot there's you can't do it all in, in there's all you know, Take MRIs; they're so super super popular. They're super, super slow relative to how fast brains work. So, you know, there you can't do timing experiments with a with a MRI. So, so it is, it's a very, if it's very challenging but exciting field because I mean, I don't really care about quantum mechanics. It doesn't have much impact on my day-to-day life. But understanding how my brain works can help me understand, you know why I do things I do and why, why other people do things they do. And, and um, I think it's critical now that we really have a better understanding of each other. If we're going to move forward without, you know, bad results.
1: Yeah. So as people, it seems like sometimes it, some people just think like they just think so much more quickly than I can. And then sometimes I feel like I can think more quickly than some other people with different things. Is that a, a neuron thing? Is that a synaptic firing or is it a chemical thing? What controls the speed of thought? Wow, that's like a big, it seems like such a big question all of a sudden.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's complicated. Um, for example, we do know that as we get older and I'm in the older group now, so I um, experienced this. We do know that processing speeds go down as a natural part of aging. And that does not mean, you know, you don't have to have anything wrong with you. It just is what it is. And, um, one of the things that's interesting about it is it appears that, um, that one of the things that happens is that the signals get noisier. So for anyone out there who's in engineering especially electrical engineering understands signal to noise ratio ideas that's part of it it seems like the signals are getting uh noisier um and you know if you look at something like autism it may turn out to be that too much noise is a big part of what's going on in autism i mean people with autism tend to be hypersensitive to things like touch, you know, they, they close drive them crazy. It's like they're getting too much signal. Um, so, that's just one tiny element of it that I do know about is the, is the noisiness part. Um, and that affects not only the processing speed, but the accuracy. So, take, for example, the fact that most people as they get older have trouble understanding what they hear in a noisy environment. That doesn't necessarily mean they have a hearing deficit. Okay, so um, I, I'm sorry I can't give more detail because it's not a field I know a lot about, but, and I would say that's probably one of the ones where we're really at a very primitive, primitive stage.
1: No, it's that. okay, that makes a little bit more- But you
2: are, you, one thing I would say is you're right. Processing speed is important to intelligence. In fact, one of the things that gets smart people in trouble is, is, is processing speed because we have this natural um, tendency to assume that when we think of something fast, that it's right. And, um, and that's, you know, we have the sense that that's the right answer when it comes to us quickly. And so people who are really fast processors will, they'll come up with an answer and they'll be more likely to be sure they're right, (laughs) though they aren't necessarily right. Okay, so that's a hazard of being smart and having fast processing speed.
0: (laughs) Ah, cool. (laughs) This has been
2: fascinating.
0: I really appreciate. Gosh, we we really appreciate that you, you know, that you're able to speak to us today about these things.
2: Well, I've enjoyed it a lot. Um, I, um, yeah, I hope that um, maybe a few people might check out the show. Is it okay if I give them that information again? Absolutely, would, uh, yes. It would say. also okay. Yeah, yeah, so obviously you can just get Brain Science in any audio app. And my website's brainsciencepodcast.com. That's really tricky. But if you'd like a handout about these five things, um, you can sign up for my newsletter. Just um, text the word Brain Science, all one word, to 55444. That's Brain Science, all one word, to 55444.
1: Now I'm going to remember that number all day. <laughs> it's going to be stuck because as you were saying it, I was repeating it in my head. Yeah, you guys,
2: you should. You, if you have a newsletter, you should get one of those. It's really, I've been getting lots of people signing up that way. It seems really popular.
1: So yeah. I, yeah. I, this is the first time I've, I've seen that. I mean, I've seen like stores text this number and stuff. I've never thought <laughs> for, like, for a newsletter or something. That's really cool.
2: Yeah, well, I can tell you how to sign up for it. <laughs> I (laughs) I do, too.
0: I I like this. Maybe what we've been um, brainstorming um, call to action items. So Mm -hmm. this seems like a very doable, something simple they can do. And
2: Yeah, I think it works. Uh, I mean, I'm not keeping track of whether people sign up on the website, but I get a notice every time somebody does it on the text thing. So I know it's working. Yeah, That's,
1: that's a really good idea. How often do you put out, do you put out a newsletter thing for like each episode or just every Yeah, week? I
2: mean, sometimes I will do extra newsletters, but I have my, you know, my website set up so that when my show notes go out, it automatically generates a newsletter. Oh, so that's, okay. that's, that's you know, you need to automate as many things as you can. Yes.
1: I, yeah, because we don't do a lot of these things because I didn't realize you could automate it. And I know we don't have time to do it.
2: <laughs> yeah
1: so well awesome thank you again for taking time to talk with us this, this has been this has been really really good it's just uh-uh. fun
2: enjoyed it
0: thank you for listening to this episode of science from the experts from purdue university superheroes of science
1: if you like this episode subscribe give us a positive view and share the love up.
0: hammer down